We commenced this hour, though, talking about uh, the amazing and true story of America's first black generals. And no, Colin Powell was not the first or the only black general. I, I laugh, I laugh in, in part because uh, depending on what generation you're talking to, um, all they know is what they know. Uh, and uh, if you think that Colin Powell was the only one or the first one, then you need to be uh, enlightened. And we'll do that right about now that Doug Melville joins us. He's author of the book Invisible Generals, Rediscovering Family Legacy and a Quest to Honor America's First Black Generals. Uh, Veterans Day is, what, this Friday, November the 10th, so the timing of this conversation couldn't be more propitious. And I am delighted to welcome Doug Melville to this program. Doug, how are you today, sir? I'm great, sir. How you doing today? How are you? I'm well, man. If I complain, I'd be an ingrate. I am doing well and delighted to have you on for these uh, for these minutes to talk about these uh, these uh, first black generals. You heard me make a, a, a you know a, a little a joke, a jokey joke a moment ago. Uh, I had a chance to know Colin Powell, knew him well, spent a lot of time with him, interviewed him, traveled with him. Um, great guy, uh, and yet um, for people of a particular generation, uh, he's he's like the black general that we know. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, he is really the mainstream, uh, most visible, I would say, of the black generals. I mean, there's been others before him and others since him, but there was something about Colin Powell's personality or visibility uh, in the generation where he became the voice in the face of of kind of the black general that we look up to. Yeah. How, how did he do that? I mean, we, we, we know his popularity uh, was enhanced in part because he, of course, becomes a secretary of state. Uh, at one point, he um, was polling quite highly, uh, quite nicely. Mm-hmm. Had he decided to run for president, he uh, he and his uh, his wife Alma ultimately decided that that was not the thing for them, and he opted not to run for president. He famously came out and endorsed Barack Obama, even though he was a Republican. He endorsed Barack Obama, so we know um, how he became more visible once he got into the political arena. Even though, again, he resisted the the call to run for president. But how did he end up, Colin Powell, becoming the face of uh, uh, black generals in this country? Well, you know, I think you hit it on the head uh, in your answer, kind of between the lines of that is presidents and political parties have, over the course of time, positioned black generals in a certain way to help attract the black vote. Mm -hmm. Um, In fact, um, one of the things I discuss in Invisible Generals is you know, how many times these two men got promoted right before a presidential election or were leveraged or uh, positioned by sitting or presidential incumbents that want to say, we want to show that we are elevating black individuals in the military. And this black general is an example of that. And I think Colin Powell came around at a time where weekly news programs were more popular the political conversation it was much more visible than it was 20 or 30 years ago. And in that wave of communication, Colin Powell became de facto, you know, the face of the movement. Mm-hmm. I could have begun our conversation here. Let me just ask this question right now for those who are curious as to why the book is called Invisible Generals. You did that. Why? The book was called Invisible Generals. Uh, it tracks the life of America's first two black generals. Uh, Benjamin O. Davis Sr. and Benjamin O. Davis Jr., uh, who were a father and a son um, in the military, particularly uh, Ben Davis Jr., when he went to West Point. Mm-hmm. Um, they did not know he was black upon entering in 1932. And on the second day, the cadets were instructed to treat him as if he was invisible until he dropped out. Mm. 
And his father, Ben Davis Sr., had worked in the segregated military for almost 50 years of his career, but because he couldn't command anyone because the military was segregated, he was America's first black general, but many considered him invisible because of the segregation. So those were the basis and the building blocks for the title. Mm-hmm. I'll come back to the uh, to the Davises uh, a little bit later in this conversation. But let me just ask you right quick, though, um, whether or not it is the case, I believe it is, you tell me, that in some respects we know that discrimination notwithstanding that you just laid out that the military had to navigate its way through, in some ways, there are people who believe that the military has frankly been far uh, ahead of society writ large in this country when it comes to allowing uh, for African-Americans to serve and to be promoted. Would you accept that argument or not? Yeah, I mean, I think the military on paper has been far ahead of general American society, and I think that really transitioned during World War II, um, in 1947, so we're currently right now, we're at the 75th anniversary of integration mm-hmm. uh, in the United States military. But people sometimes forget that before there was a civil rights movement, there was the military passing the integration bill. And before the military passed the integration bill, there were the Tuskegee Airmen. So it's actually been uh, a step-by-step process where the military had moved faster than society. Right. But in that move, it wasn't at the volumes or expectations that people thought yeah. because people were enacting integration at the pace that they felt mm-hmm. they could deliver on it. So even though the laws were passed, Tavis, you know, people moved at the speed that they felt that they could move. So it didn't move as fast. Yeah. So some people thought it was somewhat of a red herring. I want to talk more about this 75 years since integration of the military when we come forward. Veterans Day again this Friday, November the 10th, and we're talking about Invisible Generals, the new book from Doug Melville, who you're listening to right now on Tavis Smiley. Unapologetically progressive. progressive. Unapologetically black. Black, black, black. You're tapped into Tavis Smiley. Tavis Smiley. Smiley. He's rooting for everybody black. Everybody black. black. More of Tavis Smiley coming your way right now. Right now. Right now. Right Doug Melville's book is called Invisible Generals, Rediscovering Family Legacy and a Quest to Honor America's First Black Generals, just in time for Veterans Day this Friday, November the 10th. Um, Doug, let me let me just, let me just get your take on this 75-year journey uh, since integration of the military. Uh, don't need to color the question much more than this. How do you how do you how do you read it? What's your what's your take on that 75-year journey? Well, I think if you look at the top of the military today, uh, General C.Q. Brown, Joint Chiefs of Staff, uh, General Lloyd Austin, we have a lot of diversity at the top of the United States military in the highest, most powerful positions in our military and armed services. So I think you can always point to those individuals that excel at the highest level. Mm-hmm. The challenge is always in the middle when there's benefit of the doubt, when there's two people with equal qualifications, who gets selected, who gets promoted, many times when you're not in a war time or if you're not assigned to war, it's very subjective. And I think those are the types of conversations that we have to look toward and say, do we need to make more specific criteria to ensure that people become officers that are people of color at a faster rate? Do we need to work to see who becomes promoted to general? Because once you start getting higher up, the numbers of promotions get quite uh, get 
quite stunted and go much lower pace. So while I said the military is absolutely moving in the right direction, just like all institutions, change and evolution needs to come in the middle many times where subjective activity can sometimes include biases that don't move up groups at the rate that they should based on the populations. We know that Joe Biden, um, whatever one thinks of him, um, one can't argue this. Um, And let me just preface it by saying I believe that symbolism matters. I believe that substance matters more. I ain't mad at symbolism, but I like substance. But symbolically, one has to give Joe Biden a tip of the hat for all the African-American first that he has put uh, on the docket. Uh, You start with Vice President Kamala Harris. You go to KBJ on the U.S. Supreme Court. You go to Lloyd Austin as Secretary of Defense, and since you mentioned Lloyd Austin, um, to your mind, how big a deal was it um, to, to to make him the first African-American to run our Defense Department? I think every step is a step in the right direction when you bring new positions and new perspectives to any role that high in the military. I think what you said is very important to understand, substance versus symbolism. And I think a lot of times... Um, People look at these individuals as symbolic, and we need a vision. You can't be what you cannot see. But then the substance below it is the part that sometimes gets lost in translation or the level of um, eyeballs and the level of concentration and focus is not the same. So Mm -hmm. I applaud President Biden because the other thing about all this, Tavis, is all these men are qualified. Mm -hmm. And sometimes when we lean too much on race, we put it ahead of the qualifications. I remember when the Supreme Court, uh, KSJ, was getting uh, promoted to the Supreme Court or going through her um, the process of her validation. There was so much as first black, first black, first black, but you're not looking at the pedigree from Harvard and mm-hmm. all her resume. Sure. And sometimes we have to over-adjust the race to get the credibility from the masses, but that almost seems like tokenism when the qualifications – yeah, are much more than other people on the <laughs> on the court. Yeah, but we don't look at that. You know, we should be like Harvard, 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 but we go race, race, race. So I think we all have somewhat of a responsibility, but. That is kind of the position that I hear when I look at that. Yeah. I want to circle back in a moment here to the Davises, uh, the amazing and true story of America's first black generals. In case you just tuned in, Doug Melville is our guest. Uh, His book is called Invisible Generals. And the nation's first two black generals were a father and son, uh, Benjamin O. Davis Sr. and Benjamin O. Davis Jr. One could ask, and I will in a moment, why Benjamin O. Davis Jr. would want to go this route given what he saw and what he knew that had happened to his father vis-a-vis prejudice and discrimination. Uh, why would he even want to go in that space? But before before I get to the Davises, let me just ask a question in real time today. Uh, and I want to be forthright and, and, and direct about it. Why? For a variety of reasons, I don't need to, li- to list because you know exactly what I'm thinking. But why would any black person in this moment want to volunteer to serve in our armed forces? Well, I think the armed forces provides incredible opportunity for so many different roles. You know, you could talk about AI, you could talk about drones, you could talk about computer science, engineering. There's so many different areas, you know, the Space Force, which is now part of the Air Force. There's so many different roles that you could lean into and so many different opportunities in the military that sometimes the private sector does not offer the same opportunity. 
It's just sometimes those roles don't get the most press. They don't get the most visibility. You think about sometimes the harder roles or more of the blue-collar roles, and you don't look at all the exceptional roles that are available in the United States military. So I think it's just a great opportunity for anyone, but certain opportunities are better based on the skill set of the person. Mm -hmm. I'm thinking, uh, and again, I didn't need to lay it out because you know exactly what I was thinking. I'm thinking of... um the ways in which um, black people um, mm-hmm. uh, have to square their, how about I put this, their politics <laughs> with, uh, and the way the country continues to maltreat us in so many ways, uh, how you have to square that, how you have to juxtapose that with putting your life on the line for your country. Uh, my father was in the Air Force for almost 40 years, and so I'm, I'm, I'm a military mm-hmm. brat myself, so I, I, I understand something about this. And my dad and I have any number have, have had uh, any number of conversations about this, but I'm always fascinated by people. And I ain't mad at nobody for the for the choices they make, but I'm always fascinated specifically by black people who would be willing to put themselves on the line to protect and defend a country that still disregards them, still does not value their lives. And that's in real time. We ain't got to go back to the World War One, World War Two, where, as you well know, uh, uh, Doug, uh, Black soldiers had to ride on the back of the train behind the Nazi war criminals. Uh, mm-hmm. The Tuskegee Airmen, it, you know, saved the day uh, and still no respect uh, for these persons. And that was then. Uh, but we still live in a country where black people are not regarded, their humanity and their dignity is not celebrated the way it ought to be. Uh, and yet to make a decision to put your life on the line for the country. Again, I ain't question nobody's patriotism. But that's always been a conundrum for me. Yeah, I think, you know, my thinking on this was passed down to me from Ben Davis Jr. and his point of view, because anything that had to do with the military, I always leaned on him for his point of view. I never was attracted to being in the military. So my experience was really just through osmosis in many ways. But his position was certain Americans have to bear a different burden. Some Americans can enjoy the freedom of America. And some Americans have to still build the freedoms Mm -hmm. of America that Mm -hmm. are promised. And he looked at it as I have to build for the future where my other fellow generals and other servicemen can enjoy this generations of success. But if we want our generations of success to be had, I have to donate my time today for you to have a better future. And I think that thinking was so critical for him not being bitter. But when you position a question like that, Tavis, it's important to realize that it is the mindset. Are you going there to build for the future, or are you really going there to enjoy the the time that you put in today? And I think that's something that we have to get our minds around. Well, I can see there is great nobility. There is great nobility in that answer, in that frame that Benjamin O. Davis Jr. shared with you. Uh, hard to argue with the nobility of it, and yet um, uh, it's um, again it, it, it remains. Hard to do. Yeah, it, yeah, it's hard yeah, to do. yeah, lot, Chavis, yeah. It's hard to do. Yeah, a lot easier, a lot easier said than done. <laughs> That's what I was about to say. A whole lot easier <laughs> said than done. I, I digress, though. I'm looking at my time; it's getting away from me. Let me circle back then to these Davises. So, um, Colin Powell, as we said earlier, wasn't the first or the only one. The, uh, the, the America's first black generals were a father and son: Benjamin O. Davis Sr., Benjamin O. Davis Jr. Tell me more about these Davises and how that happened. Yeah, so um, Benjamin Davis uh, Sr. was denied an entry into West Point by uh, President McKinley. He runs away to Wyoming 
and joins the Buffalo Soldiers, where he actually meets up with the other black officer at that time, whose name was Charles Young. And he talks with Charles Young. Charles Young becomes his mentor in many ways and shares with him that there is a way to get through and to West Point. And he taught him the way to do that. But you would have to train someone from the time they were born. So mm-hmm. think of, you know, Deion Sanders and Shador or LeBron and Bronny. It's like it could happen, but you'd almost have to prepare someone from the time they were young. Um, ben Davis Sr.'s wife dies in childbirth. He's now a single dad of three children, two daughters and a son. He brings his son barnstorming because he was depressed and he really wanted to have an outlet for him. And he flies in an airplane and he comes down and goes, Daddy, I want to be a pilot. And Ben Sr. could have said, no, 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 mm. let's go get ice cream. <laughs> but yeah. he said, let me... If you're ready to be a pilot, the private sector is aviation was segregated. So in the public sector, if you graduate from West Point, there's no way they could turn you down as a West Point graduate if you want to be an aviator in the United States Army. So Ben Jr. goes to West Point Military Academy, and in 1932, he gets in. And Cavus, they didn't know he was black upon entry, and they silenced him for four years. Mm. No conversations, no communication. He rode a segregated bus to the Army-Navy game. And when all was said and done, he still ends up in the top third of his class. And the brass asked him if he would be willing to honorably discharge because blacks are never going to fly planes. But his dad said to him, son... One day there'll be a conflict and our number will be called. So upon graduating in 1936 from West Point, there's a photo of a father and a son, and they were the only two black generals out of 335,000 people in the military, and those were the Davises. And they worked together, senior with Truman, to write this desegregation bill, which is 75 years ago. Mm -hmm. Also working with FDR, who wanted to win the black vote and asked, how can I win the black vote? And Davis Sr. said, you need to show that the military is equal for everybody, which includes allowing them to fly planes. And then Ben Sr. and then uh, FDR said, well, who would fly? And Ben Sr. said, my son. And that was the creation of the Tuskegee Airmen when the dad worked with FDR to get it approved and the son went down to Tuskegee. And that's where Ben Davis Jr., became the commander of 15,000 men and women, and he had never commanded anyone in his whole life. And he was in charge of a fully segregated Air Force. Mm. So that was the story of how they worked together. And I think the most interesting part of it, um, and one thing I talk about in the book was, Ben would always talk about the segregated maps. Mm -hmm. And during World War II, not all the maps were integrated. And he kept seeing maps that didn't have his airfield on it in Ramatelli, Italy. And he suggested to the men to paint the tails red so the Allied forces wouldn't bomb the base. And that was the the beginning of the red tails. The red tails, yeah. Yeah. I'm sorry, good it's, 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 an unbelie- it's an unbelievable story. And I think for me, it's the father-son part of it. Yes. That they couldn't have done it without each other. Yeah. 
No, it is an amazing story. Just the, just the story of the, how the Red Tails came to be and, 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 and the backstory to that um, is uh, is arresting uh, to hear. Um, well, I'm not naive in asking this. I, I'm sitting in L.A. So I know how Hollywood works. Why has this not been a major feature film about this father and son? I don't know. I, I would like to get it to that level. I want to bring it to the big screen. I want people to hear the real story. In my opinion, this story is more interesting than the Hollywood fictionized stories that they tell yeah. about the Red Tails. I think this is a, a real story of a father and a son, a single parent whose son has a dream. And it just happens to be at this level, but I think it's very granular. You know, most people want the best for their children and want them to live their dream. And I dedicated it to every parent who's willing to sacrifice their dream for their child. Yeah. Um, if you are in the Southern California area um, this weekend, Doug Melville has a book signing at Barnes and Noble, Marina Del Rey. Love that store. Uh, Barnes and Noble, Marina Del Rey, this Saturday, November the 11th at 2.30 p.m. So if you're in Southern California, uh, this Saturday, 2.30 p.m., November 11th at Barnes and Noble in MDR. Marina Del Rey to sign his book, Invisible Generals, Rediscovering Family Legacy and a Quest to Honor America's First Black Generals. Uh, this Friday, of course, is Veterans Day. It's an amazing story, Doug, and you and you you tell it beautifully in this book, Invisible Generals. I'm hoping and praying that one day uh, it'd be a great film. I mean, look at I mean, I, I remind people how successful uh, Hidden Figures was, uh, and we and when the country, certainly black people, when the country gets a chance to learn the backstory uh, of the grand contributions that black people made, it's hard to deny that. Um, and just as successful as Hidden Figures was, um, I predict that a movie about these two black men, father and son, and integrating the military and all that they did working with presidents, Truman and FDR. It's such an amazing story. I hope one day it will be a feature film. Until then, I thank you now for writing the book, Invisible Journals, and I thank you, Doug, for this conversation. All the best on your signing this Saturday at Barnes & Noble, Marina Del Rey, 2.30. Thank you, Doug. Thank you so much, Tavis. Good to have you on. More of Tavis Smiley when we come forward. 